want to celebrate what we've just heard sung and reminder of the attributes of God, I want you to stand with me for a moment and turn to someone around you and say, aren't you glad that God is good and that he does not change? Do that right now if you would, please. We don't want to take that for granted, do we? Our God is faithful, he is good, and he does not change. You may be seated. I want to throw a word out there, and I want you to think about your emotional and mental reaction to this word. So just, just internally grab a hold of your response. The word is persecution. What does that word do inside you? For, for some of us, we might say, I just want to ignore that. I don't want to think about it. For others, it's just this, I, mean, I hope that we never suffer that. You may respond by saying, I'm grateful that we don't have a great deal of persecution. You may be a person who's recognizing the, the reality of it. I think the greatest danger about here on the, in the United States as we think about what the Bible teaches about persecution is our response can be one of those other responses and the problem that that creates is first of all we ignore what's going on brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are part of the body of Christ. We also ignore a whole lot about what the Bible says about this and the reality of it. It's been my experience in shepherding people that, that because of that when some kind of suffering comes into our life or some kind of persecution it's like we just Get bitter and angry at God and say, this shouldn't, I didn't sign up for this. But friends, you did. You did. The day you decided to follow a Savior who went to the cross for you and suffered and died, who's very clear about what our expectations should be about the world we live in. Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's saying, my church is a construction project. It's a building. My church is a combat unit. It's involved in a battle. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, the reality is persecution is real around the world. Persecution is real in the Bible. It's real. And the book of Revelation that we're studying was written to really encourage the hearts of the persecuted church in the first century and the church ever since. For them to know that Jesus Christ was the Lord and head of the church, that he was in the midst of the churches to, to care for them and to shepherd them. For they would be able to know that Jesus Christ was going to triumph and his kingdom was going to come and that Christ would rule. Brought great encouragement and hope to them and I think it can to us today. This month in the Decision Magazine by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, this, this quote Never before in history has it been more dangerous to be a Christian. That's a pretty strong statement. Back it up here. The Center for the Global Study of Christianity at Gordon Cromwell Seminary in Massachusetts studied persecution, and they estimated that 900,000 Christians have died for the cause of Christ in the last 10 years. 
Do the math. That's 90,000 believers a year are dying for the name of Jesus Christ around the world. That's one every six minutes. Well, we're sitting here, every six minutes, somebody is laying down their life for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what's real. That's what's true. It's estimated that 250 million Christians are in places where they're experiencing some form of persecution today. If you look at the map up there, this is um, actually a week ago in Washington, D.C., there was a summit called the World Summit in defense of persecuted Christians. And there was just a specific leaders that were gathered to this event uh, who are involved in helping minister to the persecuted church. I was fascinated with their findings and their research about where persecution is the worst. And I know it's a little hard for you to see the details there, but the, the, the more red the color, the worse the persecution. The number one country for persecution today in the world is North Korea. We hear a lot about it in the news, but Christians in North Korea are being persecuted very severely. Uh, other countries like Somalia, Sudan, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, uh, Iran, um, Syria. We hear about those things in the news, but we don't always hear about the extreme persecution that is happening in the church. Now, in the United States, we don't experience the same level of persecution, but don't think that there's not persecution going on in the United States. It's taking a more subtle form. University campuses today, when a Christian young person or a professor takes a stand for Jesus Christ, that goes against the ideology that's often driving that university, and there's tremendous persecution that they can experience both in the dorm and in the classroom. In the marketplace, small business men and women who are running businesses today are experiencing persecution if they refuse to do a wedding for a gay couple. Uh, whether photographers, uh, bakers, florists are sometimes having their businesses shut down by activist judges and they're experiencing a level of persecution. In the media, Christianity is taking a bashing right now, worse than probably ever in my lifetime. In reaction, in some ways, to the last presidential election, and there is more of that that I think is going to come. Students in high schools in this area who are committed to living a life of virtue and purity are put down by their peers because they are the minority. And if you're a teenager here and you've said, I'm going to live for God and I'm going to live for purity, then we know that you can face pressure, but friends, it's worth it. It is worth it. And then in, think about this in the Bible. The, the realistic expectation the Bible gives us you can see some of these passages in the notes that you have in your bulletin. Matthew 5, Jesus in the Beatitudes says this. And this is like shocking, 180 degrees different than the way we would humanly look at persecution. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that are before you. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. That's not our first human reaction, is it? Or listen to this from Jesus in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said unto you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The early church in Acts 14, verse 22, Paul strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom. 
And Paul, in his last letter, before he became a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ himself, is preparing his son in the faith, Timothy, for how to face persecution. He said this, 2 Timothy 3.12, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, folks, listen. I'm not suggesting we get a persecution complex. I'm saying that we just look in the face of Scripture and what's happening in the world and say persecution is a part of the Christian life for most Christians around the world today. And it shouldn't surprise us, and we should care about that for them, but we should also prepare for it ourselves. And I don't think that the Bible gives us a a perspective on that that's saying, woe is me. What the Bible gives us is this message. Jesus Christ is the conqueror. We are his church, and we will overcome persecution. Jesus Christ is the conqueror. We are his church. And in him, we will overcome persecution. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church has been triumphant and victorious wherever persecution has happened. So we see it in the world. We see it in the United States. We see it in the Bible. I want you to see it in Smyrna. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. This is the shortest of these seven letters to the churches. It doesn't necessarily indicate the length of the sermon. I want you to know. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the messenger to the church in Smyrna, write. This is Jesus dictating this letter to John. So this is the, the words of Christ. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the slander, the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. And here's his challenge to them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. These are the words of Christ to his church, not only then and there in Smyrna in the first century, but to us today as well. So what do we know about the city of Smyrna? Well, first of all, it was a city of great primacy. Um, It was one of the greatest cities in the region. It was just about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it it competed with Ephesus for the greatest city in the area they called Asia. Matter of fact, on the coins in Smyrna, they would say, the first city of Asia in beauty and size. It actually said that on their coins. They were a little bit proud about their city, you could tell. It claimed to be the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer. Uh, Actually, a lot of places claimed to be the birthplace of the Greeks, uh, poet Homer, sort of like George Washington lived here. You know, Homer was born here, but, but one of those possible places is at Smyrna. And so it was uh, known for that. In New Testament times, it would have been a city larger than Grand Rapids proper, 200,000 people in Smyrna at that time. And it boasted of a stadium, a huge athletic stadium with athletic games, one of the largest libraries in the Mediterranean, a, a, a music center and the largest public theater in Asia for different Greek plays. Um, 
Aristides likened Smyrna to a great statue with the feet in the sea, the middle part in the plain, and the foothills, and the head crowned with great buildings on the Pagos, the mountain 500 uh, feet high above. It had a large population of Jews in that city that seemed to be mainstreamed into the culture. Matter of fact, they had contributed 10,000 denarii to the beauty of the city the Jews had. And so they were in good, uh, good relationship. It had an excellent harbor, huge harbor, with a narrow opening that could be easily defended, protected uh, as a gulf from the Aegean Sea. The economy was huge here. Um, it was an outlet for the, the Valley of Hermas and other interior regions of agriculture. It was known as a center for science and medicine. And, and actually, the name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. And, and myrrh was used for embalming, it was used for perfume, it was used for uh, other purposes, and so it was known for that as well. And um, that, that's what the name actually meant. Uh, interesting things about the history of this city that just kind of puts a context to Jesus' letter to the church. Um, the first settlement was a Greek settlement at about 1000 B.C., and it was destroyed in 580 B.C. by the Lydians, and it was laid in ruins for about 300 years. So here's a city in this great location, left for 300 years, nothing but just ruins. Alexander the Great decided that he wanted to uh, rebuild the city, and it was the first city in the, in the, in the Greek-Roman world that had a city plan. And, and Alexander the Great designed that. He died before he completed it, but it was, uh, it was all planned out in a beautiful, beautiful way. Matter of fact, many writers of antiquity commented on the beauty of the city. That hill of Pagos was 500 feet above the harbor. It was covered with temples and with um, public groves. And around the bottom of it, like a necklace, was a street of gold. And that also had temples. On the one end was the temple of Cybele, who was the uh, Asian nature goddess. On the other end, the temple of Zeus. And along the street, they had temples to Apollo and Aphrodite. But it was one of the first cities to build a temple to, the, to Caesar. And this is important in terms of what Jesus has to say. Uh, apparently, uh, th there was a time in about, um, uh, about 195 B.C., when the, there was a campaign of the Romans, when they were just beginning to expand their empire, and things had gone badly for Rome, and they came back, and it was winter, and the, the Roman soldiers didn't have adequate clothing or food. And the people of Smyrna took literally the clothes off their back and gave it to the soldiers and provided food for them. And Rome never forgot it. Uh, Cicero, one of the Roman authors, uh, called Smyrna one of our most faithful and most ancient allies. And so it became... Uh, a city that had the great benefits of the approval of Rome. It was an outpost of Rome. That's important to think about when the persecution comes. The church possibly was planted from Ephesus as a result of Paul's ministry. By the way, the current status of the city is called today Izmir in Turkey. It's, it is a large city. It is the only one of the seven cities of Revelation that still stands as a city today, and it's, a, it's the second busiest harbor and port in the city of Tur in the country of Turkey today. But let's look at what Jesus has to say to this church and kind of see how what we know about the city ties to that. Jesus starts off after talking about who he is, and we're going to come back to that. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. 
Friends, that's an encouragement to me. When you and I go through suffering of any kind or trial or temptation, when this church or God's people are going through persecution, Jesus says, I know all about it. I know what you're going through. And when Jesus says, I know, he's not saying that as a spectator to our suffering. He's saying that as one who is present with us, who is there and calls us out upon the water as we heard earlier. That's who he is. He said, I know. He said, I know your, your tribulation. And the, the word tribulation is a word that speaks of pressure, literally a crushing load. Jesus is saying, I know the load of persecution you're handing. I know it's a crushing load. And he invites them to be able to trust in him. This was coming because of the rejection of the Christians of the pagan deities. They wouldn't worship the Roman emperor. And because of actually, we know from the history of Smyrna, the the Jews really leading some of that persecution against the church. The Jews were exempt from worshiping Caesar, but they were distancing themselves from the Christians and saying, they're not part of us, go after them, persecute them. I know your tribulations. Then he says, I know your poverty. Um, There's two words for poverty in the Greek New Testament. One of them means you are having to earn your living, but you don't have anything beyond the the month. You you have uh, have enough money to pay the bills, but nothing more. This word is not that, that word. This word is to be absolutely destitute, to be a beggar. It's saying that because of your tribulation, there's been economic impact of that on you. You don't have enough for food and clothing to provide for your family. And yet Jesus says, in the midst of that, you are rich. Remember, Paul says of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. And that Jesus said, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. He goes on and he says, I know the blasphemy that you're facing. Those, the slander, that's the word blasphemy. And it was coming from Jews, those who say that they're Jews, but he says, they're really not. Paul in Romans said, "Um, not all who claim to be circumcised are really of the heart circumcision. They may be Jews ethnically, but they're not really following the faith of Abraham. That's the point here. They claim to be Jews, but they're really not. He says, as a matter of fact, they're a synagogue of Satan. Satan's name is the blasphemer. The church was facing people like this that were saying these kind of things. They're atheists. Christians are atheists because they don't worship our gods. Christians are cannibals because they talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. Christians are immoral because they have their love feasts. Uh, Christians are breaking up homes because when somebody becomes a Christian, uh, sometimes that actually leads to the destruction of the marriage. They're saying uh, Christians are facing persecution because of these false accusations. And, And if you don't think they were actually saying those things... Uh, one of the early Christians in the, sen- in the century after the apostles, a guy named Justin Martyr, wrote a defense of Christianity to the emperor and addressed each of these issues. This is what they were saying about him, blasphemy. And they were also blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ. They were scorning and mocking his name. And, and Paul says, you're facing that kind of persecution. 
He then says you're, you're suffering. You're being thrown, some of you are being thrown into prison. And, and in the Roman Empire, when the empire-wide persecution is happening now at this day, Diocletian as emperor is, is using the power of Rome against the church in a way that hadn't happened even under Nero. And, and the church is facing this kind of suffering. He said, they're throwing some of you into prison that you may be tested. The Romans would arrest somebody, often would torture them, and if they were found innocent, they would be released, but, but often, after being tortured, they would be executed. That's what was happening. That's what the Christians were actually facing. You're being tested like gold. He said, you're going to, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. Um, that was an... A, and in the ancient world, that was used for a short, measured period of time. This isn't going to go on forever, basically, Jesus is saying. This persecution is going to be intense, but it's going to be not long. He's encouraging them. He's giving them hope. I want you to note, as Jesus is saying this, there was um, not long after this, one of the, the bishop of Smyrna was, and was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by the Apostle John, and he was the leader of the church in Smyrna at this time. This is uh, sometime after this letter was written. And they, when the persecution continued to increase in Smyrna, they sought out Polycarp. And for a period of time, he, he went into hiding. They actually um, uh, captured a young man that was a relative of his and tortured him until he revealed the location of Smyrna, and they came and arrested Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp, when they came, he could have run away, but knew that that would be of no avail, so he invited them in and he served them a meal. Well, he went upstairs and prayed for courage. Uh, well, the process of time, he was brought into the Colosseum, and the, the Roman official asked whether he was Polycarp, and he confessed he was. He told him to deny Christ. He said, have respect to your old age. And he said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists. In other words, deny Christ. And he refused. Again, the Roman official said to Polycarp, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. And here's what Polycarp said. I love this. Hear these words of this brave man. Eighty and six years I have served him and he's never... Uh, he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The courage of this man. And so again, the, the proconsul said, you need to swear by the fortune of Caesar, and don't you know what I can do to you? He said, I will have wild beasts at my hand, and they will cast upon you unless you repent. And Polycarp said, call for them, for we're not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt what is evil. It's well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. And again, the proconsul said, well, then I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the wild beasts and will not repent. And this is what Polycarp said. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you're arrogant of the fire, the ignorant of the fire that is coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why tearest thou? Bring forth what you will. And at 86 years old, 
Polycarp was burned at the stake in the Colosseum in Smyrna. And I say, what heroic faith is that? Same church, a man of God. That story could be told over and over again, friends. After World War II, missionaries in China, some of them graduates of Moody Bible Institute, were taken by the the communists and beheaded for the cause of Jesus Christ. And all the missionaries were sent out of the country, many who had labored long and hard to share the gospel of Christ with China. And for many years, because of how tight the bamboo curtain was around China, we didn't know what was happening in the church. But as word began to, to kind of eep out, and, and we, would, we would hear what was happening, the spread of the gospel in China under persecution was so incredible that millions of people have trusted Jesus Christ and formed into house churches, even though today the persecution continues to rage against them. Stories could be told during World War II in the country of Ethiopia. The the evangelical missionaries were sent out as the Italians took over, and those few handful of believers were persecuted horribly. Many of them murdered for the cause of Christ. But when the missionaries came back after the end of that of that occupation, they found, get this, 10,000 Christians in Ethiopia. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus tells and calls them, what does it mean to trust Christ to overcome this persecution? Remember with me who Jesus says he is. First of all, he is the the one who's in the midst of the church as the Lord and the high priest of the church. He is present in the midst of that persecution. That's where we saw him in Revelation 1. He's there in the midst. But then look at how he describes himself in verse 8. I am the first and the last. What's that about? Interesting that that is actually an Old Testament name for God. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 6, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Or Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, who I call, I am he, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus is here claiming deity equality with God. In a city of Smyrna with all these false deities, Jesus addresses this church and says, I am the first and the last, meaning I am the true and the living God, and there's no other God but me. But he doesn't stop there. He said, I'm the one who died and came back to life. Do you know what what gives the church that's persecuted great courage around the world? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus died and rose again, then we know we will rise again with him, and there's no fear in death. My friend, the worst thing that could ever happen to you and I would be to die for the cause of Christ, perhaps, but it's not the worst thing, because we're following a risen Savior. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So the apostle Paul wasn't afraid 
and writing 2 Timothy that he'd be persecuted and would be taken outside of the city of Rome and beheaded for the cause of Christ. Peter was not ashamed that he would be turned upside down on a cross and crucified in the city of Rome. Thomas was unashamed in India when they threw spears through him and killed him. They were courageous. This group of men who hid in an upper room in in Jerusalem from the Romans now had no fear. You know why? When you're following a risen Savior, you have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died, and I have risen again. That's who I am. So we need to embrace the challenge to overcome persecution, and look what Jesus says to them. He, this is one of the shortest letters, but it's also a letter, only this letter and the letter to the church at Philadelphia, there's no confrontation of the church, nothing negative said. And here, there's nothing negative that Jesus says to this church. It's all positive. But he exhorts them with a couple of things. He said, listen, I want you, I want you to understand in verse 10, do not fear. You see, Jesus knows that our reaction to persecution is going to be the emotion of fear. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Someone has counted at least 365 times in the Bible that it says, fear not. That's one for every day of your life. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And Jesus speaks to this persecuted church, and he says, listen, don't be afraid. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Because I have something even greater in mind. You know, one of the reasons we don't fear is because nothing can take us away from his love. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, these words, And all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And by the way, if you're struggling with fears in your life, let God's word resonate that nothing can separate you from his love. And because nothing can separate you from his love, you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. He says that to the church in Smyrna. Then he says also, be faithful unto death. Don't fear. He said, be faithful unto death. Do be faithful. Continue to follow me. Don't deny my name. Don't let them pressure you into compromise. Continue to stand for me. Don't be afraid, he says. Do be faithful. And some of you may be facing pressure on the job, in school, at a university, from relatives. You may be facing that pressure right now. And I just want to say, Jesus is saying to you, and he's saying to me, don't be afraid. Do be faithful. Don't cave into fear. Continue to follow in my footprints, the one who died for you. Anticipate the reward for overcoming persecution. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus speaks these words. He said, if you be faithful, you will receive the crown of life. That's the Stephanus. It is a wreath made of olive or laurel or pine, even made of celery, believe it or not, awarded to the victor in a battle or in a, a, a game, um, a festive uh, wreath that was uh, given to special guests at a banquet. And Jesus is saying, you will receive the crown of life. Be faithful unto death because I have something better coming. I'm going to crown you. I'm going to reward you. I'm going to acknowledge you. You will get crowned in heaven for being faithful unto death. The martyr's crown. And then he says, you will conquer in battle. The one who overcomes. The one who conquers. 
And he says, listen, you, you're going to conquer because I conquered. You're more than conqueror through me. Jesus is a conqueror. We are his church in overcoming persecution. That's what he's saying. You will conquer. You will be victorious. And then he gives one more blessing, the, 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 the benefit, the reward. He says, you'll be covered in security. You will be protected from the second death. That's the lake of fire that's talked about later. And I think about the words of Polycarp when he said, uh, I'm not afraid of dying. You should be afraid of hellfire, he's saying to the proconsul. And here Jesus is saying the same thing. You don't have to be afraid. You're covered. You are protected because you have trusted in me and I've already taken your wrath. There's no wrath for you. He says there's a, there's a, a blessing, a reward of a crown, of conquering, of being covered in a security. So how do we prepare? Uh, understanding that we have no guarantee from God. Please hear me. I'm not suggesting that we, ha- that we see persecution around every corner, but I am suggesting this. Christians need to understand the Bible makes clear persecution, suffering is a part of the Christian life. So how do we prepare for that? I want to give you some, some helps here. First of all, the, one of the most important things you can do is cultivate your personal walk with God. Your daily relationship with him needs to be so central to your life that you said I would never compromise that. Cultivate your personal walk with God. And assimilate scripture into your life. Memorize scripture. Some years ago, um, when I was serving at the college out east, I got on a jet early in the morning and flew um, to Detroit. And uh, as I'm getting off the jet, and I was wearing a, a sweater vest that had the label of our seminary on it, I heard a voice of somebody in front of me talking, and I could tell that he was not from the United States, sounded like he had a Russian accent, and he turns around and he looks back, and he sees my vest, and he said, Baptist Bible Seminary, how do you know about that? And I said, I work there. He said, I'm a student there. And I said, I've never met you before. Let me buy you breakfast. We'll go to find breakfast. This brother, I had heard about him, but I had never yet met him because he was on campus when I was gone. He was one of three Russians from Siberia that were coming and doing graduate-level studies to plant churches and a seminary in Siberia in a city that was um, the Soviets had hidden from the United States and others because they had more nuclear scientists there working on all of their nuclear program. So it was a city that was hidden and, and more PhDs per capita in that city than any place. So I'm talking to this guy, intrigued with what they're doing and what God is doing and then continues to do. I just uh, got, a, got an email from him the other day. And he said this, as he's telling me his story, he said, my grandfather went to prison in Siberia, my father went to prison in Siberia, and when I was five years old, my grandmother said to me, you need to memorize the Bible. Why, Grandma, do I need to memorize the Bible? Because when you go to prison, that's the only Bible you're going to have. Five years old. How's that for an approach to Christian education of children? Five years old. you got to memorize the Bible because when you go to prison, it's all you're going to have. And this man is a great leader of a movement of God that's happening across Russia today. Phenomenal. So fortify your faith with prayer. It's not unusual for us to have fear, but frankly, when you pray... Your fears are put to death. 
And don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ now. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If you're ashamed to share the gospel now, you probably will be ashamed to share the gospel in a time of persecution. Be willing to share what Christ means to you and what he's done in your life. Be bold about that now. And think biblically about persecution and suffering. Matter of fact, there's some help, some questions down at the bottom to be able to help you with that. And then finally, pray for the persecuted church. There's three websites that I have down at the uh, questions for insight and application that you can find out what, what is happening around the world right now in the persecuted church. And one of the things that we as a church ought to be doing is regularly praying for the persecuted church. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of them are paying with their lives. Some of them are paying with losing their homes and losing their children being taken away from them. Some of them are incarcerated and tortured. This day, right now, your brothers and sisters in Christ are paying that kind of a price for the cause of Christ. We ought to at least pray for them. There's more that you can do than pray. There's times when, we can, when we're aware of that, when we can actually write a letter to an, an elected official and say, we're concerned about this person in this country. You know, it's amazing what will happen. It's amazing what will happen when believers do communicate with elected officials and say, we're concerned about this person in this country. There have been people that have been set free because of a letter that someone wrote to a senator that it got into the hands of the State Department and that communication happened because people were praying and people were willing to be active. But you know what the church was saying there? And the church in China, the church in North Korea, the church in Iran, the church in Egypt, the church in Iraq, and all these places were persecution. Here's what they're saying. Christ is enough. Christ means more to me than my life. Christ means more to me than my home. Christ means more to me than my liberty. Christ means more to me than anything. Christ is enough for me. Let's bow together and pray. Father in heaven, we do want to, in this moment, pray for the persecuted church around the world. We ask you, Lord, to give our brothers and sisters in Christ courage. We ask, Lord, that they will be bold in sharing the gospel in spite of persecution. We ask, Father, for the spiritual leaders who are often pastors and other leaders who are paying the greatest price, that you would Watch over widows and orphans of their children and bless them and protect them. We ask, Father, that you'll help us to be diligent in praying for them, even people we've never met that we'll meet in heaven and we'll spend eternity with. And God, I pray that you'll give us the courage that comes from your word and from prayer, from living lives of faith and being bold in sharing the gospel, that we will not cave in. That when and if persecution comes into our lives, that will not be surprised by that, but that will not be ashamed of Christ. Because, Lord, you are the first and the last. You are the one who died and have risen again. You are the conqueror, and we are your church. And in your name, we can overcome persecution. Lord Jesus, you said you would build your church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You've been doing that for 2,000 years. And persecution has never squelched the gospel. It's been forcing it to spread in the reality of people who have been redeemed, showing the change that Jesus Christ makes. So be glorified. 
be lifted up and honored, O Christ. You are our conqueror. In Jesus' name, amen.